Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. I want to start off by wishing everyone a happy new year. I'm excited as we've got a great lineup of guests who will be bringing you tons of information on how to best finance your company and properly engage investors. I also want to thank the guests of 2019 who contributed their time and experience to the podcast. Adding to that is the comments and the compliments received from you, the audience, and appreciation for hearing from them. So thank you all. Now in this first episode of 2020, I'm happy to introduce you to Cody Sanchez. She's a partner and managing director of Entourage Effect Capital, which is one of the largest growth equity funds in the cannabis space. Cody came into the world of finance and cannabis with an interesting background. From early beginnings as a journalist covering human and drug trafficking, she then made her way into finance. From positions with Vanguard, State Street, and Goldman Sachs, she's worked across the spectrum of the finance industry. Now in the venture business and the nascent cannabis industry, we get into what she's looking for in the companies she invests in. As well, we talk about the nuances of how a ventured fund operates and how they're really in the trust business. For entrepreneurs, this is powerful information and it could be a critical part of your capital raising. She spills the beans on what she likes to see and it could be gold for you. Enjoy this episode and all the best for the new year to come. On the line, I have Cody Sanchez, who's a managing director at Entourage Effect Capital. Cody, thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. Thrilled to be here. So what we like to do with every podcast is start off with a bit of an elevator pitch about yourself and some of your primary focuses. From the background and the research I've done on you, you've got quite an extensive CV. So I'm really keen to, to dive into the world of Cody and to what you do in finance. Yikes. Well, it's a, it's a bizarre world these days since I never thought that I would be telling my parents I am in the cannabis game. But I essentially right now what we do is we run one of the largest and, and longest standing growth equity funds in the cannabis space. It's called Entourage Effect Capital. A little nod to some of the medical properties of the plant all working in conjunction together. Prior to that, I've done everything but be in marijuana. I really started out my career in as a journalist. I worked along the US, US-Mexico border, actually writing issues on drug trafficking, of all things, and human trafficking and mm. the effects that these have on humans. And so, you know, I did that right out of college and very quickly. I surmised that this is a huge problem that probably isn't changed just by coverage. It's changed by understanding the main mechanism that all these people that allows all these people to be trafficked or these drugs to be trafficked, which is really money. You know, everybody does it for money. And so I worked my way up through finance through a few different companies that probably sound familiar, like Vanguard 
and State Street and Goldman Sachs, and finally went to a firm where I headed our Latin America business called First Trust, and there sold to institutions, endowments, foundations, and all of that in a different type of emerging market. That business had grown to a stage where I felt like it was more stable and you know there was margin compression. So it wasn't as interesting from a, a business perspective or a profitability perspective. And so I looked to exit that business and I exited that in 2018. And I had invested in the cannabis space for, well, since 2014. I was one of the seed investors in this fund family back then. And I had watched sort of the progression of this industry and our firm in general and realized that there was another huge emerging market here. And that, you know, it only happens so often in one's lifetime in which you get an opportunity to be part of a generational wealth creation event that you might have an ability to affect the outcome. And so that's what brought me seated here today with you at Entourage Effect. Really interesting. What I like about your story there, and I, and, and I think if I'm not mistaken, you've got a PhD under your belt as well. Uh, (laughs) you're making us all look bad here with your accomplishments (laughs) is you've worked the spectrum of finance you've gone from some major you know multi-billion dollars under management you know organizations that are are um, will move markets all the way into venture stage early you know the the advent of an industry you know what an amazing spectrum to work across out of curiosity, what was the world like working in these multi-billion dollar funds and, and the work you were doing early on in your career? Well, those companies are all quite distinct. So there were certainly some differences between the three. But the overarching theme is really that I think those type of companies are incredible training grounds. So, you know, if you're new to your career or you're new to finance, I think there's no better place than to go to one of the you know multi-multi-billion dollar firms like the ones that I've listed because they have corporate training programs. They have a massive amount of investment that they put into all of their employees, especially at a firm like, let's say, Goldman Sachs, or, you know, I was in an accelerated development program at Vanguard, where they put a lot of money into us as well. So you really, you get paid to take an MBA is really what happens. And, you know, in in my two realms, I had, you know, one that was more of a focus on macroeconomics, and one that was more of a focus on capital markets and what's happening in the stock market. And so pairing those two together while getting paid is a beautiful thing. And I also find the caliber of other humans there is incredibly high. You know, you have a lot of competition, which is really good, actually, because it means that everybody raises the bar. And, you know, you set the standard high, and so you try to achieve it. So that's all the positive parts about that. The tough parts about those billion-dollar businesses are that if you want to do things differently, if you are looking to shake things up, if you're a bit of a contrarian like I am, if you don't like the status quo very much, then that big of a company lends itself to massive bureaucracy. And so even at a firm that I think tries to keep itself more lean and entrepreneurial like Goldman, there's a lot of, we've always done it this way. Mm. And, you know, and they have a right to that in some way. They've built a massively successful business, successful business, and they have a lot of things to protect. But some point in your career, I think you've got to go out and try to do something on your own or try to do something with a group of other people and really make your imprint on the world. And that is very hard to do within those longstanding institutions. 
Yeah, I can I can imagine that. I mean, they've got a formula of success and and who are you to step in and and screw with that if you will. One thing I'm curious about when you you know talk about Goldman or you talk about Vanguard and the work you were doing, there's always going to be a sales component whether you're raising capital or selling funds. What were those sales perhaps sales training or uh, narrative development programs like? I mean, did they teach you how to pitch deals? Where did you learn that? Yeah, well, sure. Both of them had a component of that that was very, very different because it comes down to theory. You know, at Vanguard, for instance, where I first started in finance, they really have a theory that you can never beat the markets that you should just diversify at the lowest cost possible into the financial markets and essentially with a few automated tools in there, set it and forget it. Just mm-hmm. don't try to be smarter than the market is really their mantra. So there the sale was really believe in this ideology. And you know, and we'll teach you through, you know, Burton Malkiel, a random walk uh, a random walk down Wall Street and, you know, John Bogle and sort of how do we indoctrinate people to the idea that you cannot beat the market. And so the best thing that you can do is just put your money in index funds, which, oh, by the way, we're the largest provider of them in the world. (laughs) And they had a really unique cost structure that basically makes it impossible to compete with them because they are sort of like a mutual insurance company in that they aren't a strict non-for-profit. And so anyway, so that was Vanguard. And that was really useful because they, they weren't trying to sell anybody, anything besides that idea. And so you've got a broad sweep of what does the investment landscape look like? According to them, let's talk about the history of markets. And let's do some analysis on how markets actually perform over time. And can we as humans actually beat this thing called the market in order to make ourselves more money? And then you had Goldman Sachs, which couldn't have been more different, you know, and they basically said like, yeah, maybe most people should go and invest in an index fund. But if you have access to Goldman Sachs research, network, intellectual capital and investment opportunities, you should absolutely try to beat the market because we can do that time and time again. And so then it was learning active management and being indoctrinated into this idea that if you invest correctly in areas where there is some dislocation in the market or some unfair advantage or some arbitrage opportunity, then you can actually do quite well. And so I I tend to lean more towards the Goldman Sachs model, especially in alternatives like cannabis, where there's massive dislocation and index doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. whatsoever, in my opinion. And so those are the, the differences between the two. But it's not like a Glen Gary, Glen, Glen Ross, where you're, you know, they're just trying to teach you how to sell anything to anyone. It's much right. here's the theory of the market. Hmm. Interesting path there. And um, I mean, again, huge companies. You know, the next question that I come to is, how is it being a woman in finance? Generally a man-dominated world or a, you know, a male-dominated world. And we're seeing more and more women in finance, but has it been a difficult road, any more difficult than any others? Have there, are there any lessons you have for, for other women entering finance? Sure. I mean, I would start off with this. I think there is no better time in all of history than to be a worker in the U.S. or really anywhere in the developed world or arguably anywhere in the world on average globally than there is today. And so I'm a huge optimist in that um, we're incredibly lucky to be alive today. Then I would say there's no better time to be in finance as a woman 
than today, than any other time in history. And so there's a lot of negative narrative out there right now about women in business and women in finance. And believe me, I mean, I could tell you stories that would just flabbergast you and probably severely embarrass a lot of people in this space Mm. if they're listening and knew who I was talking about. But on average, I mean, my best mentors in the space have been men. Right now, I'm, we have a partnership with, with three guys, uh, and then two of us are women. And that's Entourage Effect Capital. And so, yeah, I think as a woman, what I've learned is more than anything, if I was going to teach my children something, my daughters, or if I was going to, to speak to the next generation going into a finance group, I would say, set an incredibly high bar and don't settle for anything less. And if anybody does something that you feel uncomfortable with, you have to speak to them about it. And you have to, you know, have an adult conversation that is uncomfortable up front. A lot of times it's miscommunication and misunderstandings. Sometimes it's absolutely not. It's wildly inappropriate and there has to be real action taken. But I think, you know, all of us have to not play the victim. It's one thing I really don't like is anybody telling me, women, I'm a Latina, so minorities, that we are a victim that somebody else has to take care of? Because I don't believe that at all. We have all of the infrastructure in place to be able to take care of ourselves. And I think that it's really important that we come and show up in that manner. And then for all of the men or non-minorities in that space, you know, you have to do what, what my partners did, which was bring partners on like Tiffany Liff and myself, who are partners at Entourage Effect, who are incredible assets to their skill set. So we all complement each other, regardless of if I'm a woman or not, and treat that with the same exact respect as if I was a man, white, black, brown, green, or otherwise. Hmm. So some of this, I think, is a little bit exacerbated, and it's gotten much, 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 much better. I never know what I'm going to get when I ask that question. And and I, I have to say, I very, very much appreciate your response in the sense of, let's not be a victim. You know, you've got the resources there to go forward and, and stand strong. And so thanks for sharing that. I think it's, uh, I hope others hear that and, and can can benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to say, because if somebody is actually being victimized like I am the first one to want to go at people in that regard. There is no chance with my history of supporting women and especially women with sexual assaults and human trafficking and all of that, that I wouldn't be all on top of anyone. But that being said, I believe in a message of empowerment instead of uh, disenfranchisement. And so it just depends on which side of the scale you're on. What a great perspective. Thanks for that. After that, I want to jump into the entourage effect and the fund that you have there and, and the partners and where you're focused and what you're seeing. Can you share a bit about that? Absolutely. So we're a firm that invests in cannabis startups. And we were, I think, one of the very first to do that and have invested in, see, 43 companies now over the last, uh, well, since 2014. And it's been, it's been a real blast. We've invested in some of the bigger names out there. So you guys would know Acreage or GTI, if you're in the cannabis space. And what we've seen is that, you know, when we first started investing in the space, there was a massive capital constraint. You know, there was no money to be had uh, for startups. And so they're having to get really creative about the ways that they were they were able to capitalize their businesses. We filled a hole there, which gave us access to some of these really interesting first unicorns in the space. And then we see today that the cannabis market is actually, in my opinion, in one of the most interesting phases we've seen 
thus far. It's a distressed market, meaning there's lots of companies looking for capital and lots of companies that aren't able to meet those capital requirements. And where my company comes in is we are very, very aggressive and hands-on with the companies that we invest in. And so two of our team members are turnaround experts that came from distressed companies that know how to restructure companies and take them from the brink of bankruptcy to profitability. Uh, a couple others are entrepreneurs themselves. And then a couple others are people like me with, with finance experience. And so in the world of investing, we're very funny, we humans, because we have this tendency to buy, buy, buy while everything is at record highs and then sell or sit on the sidelines when everything starts to go down. But if you think about it anywhere else in our lives, when a sale happens, what do we do? We rush in, we mob Nordstrom's, you know, we go crazy on Black Friday. <laughs> and so for the few people who, you know, understand the space and have the appropriate resources and see the opportunity to buy at a value, I think right now is a fascinating time to be investing in cannabis. Um, and there's a lot of leverage here that, you know, I, I'm not sure we'll have in the coming years. And just to give you an example, I can't use any, any or I won't use any names, but, you know, there are, there are companies that we invest in that have valuations that we're seeing opportunities to invest at a level where their sales are higher than the value that they want to place on the company, but they have more cash, maybe even times two on the balance sheet than the valuations that they're being, being given in the public markets. And so really interesting times for those people who want to make investments in the cannabis space. You know what I, I've seen there, and I've, I've drawn the analogy to the dot-com or the dot-bomb era. We had this incredible run-up in the, the late 90s, and then boom, falls off. The internet's not all that it's cracked up to be. And through that, you had some some incredible names that were that stood the test of time, like Amazon as an example. And the, the greatest opportunity was after the the bust. And here we are, right? You're going to see some great companies come from the time we're in right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels there. I mean, in, in, in tandem with that, the one thing that's a little bit different, well, there's many things that are different, right? But the thing that I find interesting is very seldom do you have a market that has latent demand, so pent-up demand. It's a $50 billion market in the U.S. when you combine the illegal market. It's only really, depending on which numbers you look at, 9 to $10 billion right now legal sales. So if we do nothing else, no innovation, no new uh, users, no new consumer base in any facet, but move that $50 billion black market to a, a legal market, we have a 5x return. Mm. And if on top of that, we're able to legalize in more states, legalize around the world, we have, and I don't know how many x return. And then if you add this idea of, you know, it no longer being the stoner stereotype, but the soccer mom who's going to be a cannabis user in some way, shape or form, whether psychoactive or otherwise, I think the opportunity is pretty straightforward. However, I mean, absolutely, there's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster along the way. And that's when you, you make your money in downturns and you collect it in up markets. Hmm. Now, with Entourage, what's the bite size? What kind of uh, deals do you look for? You say you're very hands-on, but yeah, how big? Yeah. So, I mean, we write checks anywhere from 
you know, one to 10 to $12 million. And we'll definitely do bigger deals than that if there's something really interesting and we pull in a syndicate syndicate or some of our other co-investors. So we can be pretty flexible in the space, which is necessary, in my opinion, as this market is maturing. And the only thing that we don't do as much of is we invest in a company called ArcView. ArcView is really our seed stage investment platform. So think about Mm. them like a little bit of Y Combinator, the you know very famous accelerator, meets a seed stage, very, very early VC investor. And we invest in that company. So we get to see their deal flow, but they do the really, really early stage. And then we take the companies that are growing a little bit further along what we call growth equity, and we invest a little bit further down their life cycle. Hmm. You know, there's something there that I don't think entrepreneurs and management teams fully appreciate is the relationships of those who are writing checks. That's a very interesting strategic relationship that you as a VC have for deal flow to keep an early eye on on deals that are growing. And then when they advance to your level, you've been watching them and have perhaps even have a relationship with them, which leads to a higher comfort level, I would imagine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, well, I think there's two things. One, if you get an investment from a firm like Entourage Effect Capital, the best of the best companies over-communicate. Quarterly updates are mandatory. The really good ones update on a monthly basis. Doesn't have to be out of control, just shortened to the point. Because what entrepreneurs sometimes forget is that as investors in, you know, we've invested in 43 of these companies, but we have looked at 1,800 companies just in the cannabis space as of December of 2018. Now the number has to be up to 2,000 and something. I don't even know what by now. So we've seen these business models so many times and we've understood, we understand what their competition is in a very detailed way because of this unique access we have to the space. And so if they're able to share with us where they're at continuously throughout their cycle, we can make some really interesting connections, observations, concerns, and and a lot of times help with a pivot before anybody knows anything's going wrong. So those are what the best companies do. In my opinion, the other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs do wrong when they're fundraising, and I could list you off a huge list because the list is numerous and nobody really (laughs) teaches how to fundraise, but the cold email to venture capitalists or to private equity firms is really not effective And the only way it's going to be effective is if you continue to drip on them with your progress with some sort of monthly update. But what's amazing to me, Corey, is nobody does it. Yeah, it is mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. So if I could have entrepreneurs change two things, it would be that. It would be communicate more frequently. And instead of trying to do cold outreach, do a little bit of homework first, figure out if you know this investor is the right type of investor for you and and show that you uh, have done that homework. Hmm. Great advice, sir. I, I really like that. The best of the best over communicate. I'm going to uh, I'm going to be sharing that quote if you don't mind. Of course. <laughs> now, something that I, I'd like to discuss is what is the venture capital business model? And I think you know there's a there's a quick and easy answer to that, but there's more to it. It's a nuanced answer that I think a lot of management teams and entrepreneurs should know about. I mean, deal flow is a key piece to that. Okay. But what's more there? What are the things that a VC firm faces that if entrepreneurs knew about, they would ultimately have better relationships with you? Sure. Well, I think it's a dual-sided coin. So first, the very first thing to remember about venture capital firms or investment firms overall is that 
we are largely fiduciaries to somebody's money. And so everything that we do has to be with the mindset and the lens of, I am here to deliver returns to my investors, if at all humanly possible. So in that vein, everything that we do is to make sure that we're being good fiduciaries and uh, good stewards of our investors' capital. And so if you just remember that one, that you know, anytime you're coming to ask for OPM, other people's money, to a venture firm or to a private equity firm, you're asking for them to transfer their trust that was given to us by some of the world's biggest investors to you new company. And so it's money is just a transfer of trust. That's all it is. And the second that that trust gets broken, then things start to go really sideways. Now, all of us basically who are in venture capital or private equity have built businesses before myself included a few. And we know that there is nothing more, you know, masochistic than being an entrepreneur. It is the (laughs) toughest thing humanly possible besides maybe going to war. And so we understand that there's going to be issues and failures and pivots and roadblocks and, and maybe that your business will fail. All of that we get. But the one thing that you can never get back is when you lie or when you lose trust with your investors And I I think it happens sometimes because it is really tough to talk about the failures inherent in your business. And entrepreneurs are generally incredible salespeople because they have to be to sell them on these crazy dreams we all have of building something. And so sometimes that salesmanship can turn into like a lack of integrity. And that is something that you really, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to hold tight, tight, tight to the vest is always keeping that truthfulness front and center. So how do you recover from a mistake? How should an entrepreneur come to you? I mean, is there a benefit or or value in in vulnerability when in a VC relationship? Or should they be holding their cards tight and saying, okay, that failed, but I know I've got another solution? It's a great question. Here's how you have to think about it. The, The second that we put our money into a company, we are tied to you. I mean, our fund return is anywhere from seven to 10 years. Marriages in the U.S. last five. And so, you know, you and I are going to be closer to each other uh, and I'm going to know more things than perhaps somebody you're married to. And so if you think about it that way, the second that we hand over a check to our portfolio companies and with that transfer of trust, it's a little bit different than a ring, but not that different. Then what we are saying is we are here to help and support you because we've given you our money. And now our motto has always been that we are going to do whatever it takes to help our portfolio companies once we've invested in them. That is why pre us investing, you know, our diligence process is pretty tough. You know, it's a little bit of a colonoscopy. We really get in there and see everything that's happening in your business. Because if we're going to make that check, that means we're committing to you in a really serious way. So Say you're an entrepreneur and sales aren't working out right, or your CFO is missing the numbers, or you know you thought you were going to get a license and you didn't. If you bring that to us early enough, we can oftentimes help with all of this. I mean, we're not saying we're going to do the job for you, but we can give counsel, we can give advice, we can make connections, we can help you rehire people, we can even help you sell the company if it's not something that you can actually run through. We could help you do a joint venture or a tuck-in or M&A. The options are limitless, but the options become really limited the later you wait. Hmm. Yeah. And, and 
very much more limited with a the greater the trust is broken. Absolutely. And thankfully, we've been really lucky and, and we have an incredible group of entrepreneurs, but you have to expect that there's going to be some of that in every portfolio. And that unfortunately, that's just part of the, the startup game. So I think the best entrepreneurs know, over communicate, make sure that communication is truthful and transparent. You know, let us know when they're going through something because we can often help them. And none of that is going to be a deterrence to us in engaging with your business. You've already, you've already gotten your money. So now we're in the long haul. Hmm. One of the, I guess the saying goes, or the, the pros often say structure matters when you're talking about capital structure of, of companies. What do you look for? What do you shy away from? And, and the reason why I ask this and is because I think the capital structure and the terms of a deal are so often either misunderstood or overlooked when an entrepreneur is raising money. So what do you look for? It's a great question. Well, in cannabis, these companies are very labor intensive and capital intensive. And so the structure and deal terms tend to be a little bit more restrictive. We're not just doing a, you know, a really straightforward, safe or convertible like you might get out of Y Combinator or Techstars and just slapping that on every one of our portfolio companies. Not Mm. at all. These have to be much more complex from a structuring standpoint. One, because of the way that they exit. And two, to protect us as investors, because there's a ton of dilution that happens in cannabis companies uh, with the amount of capital that they need. So we have to be thoughtful there. As an entrepreneur, I think the, the best thing that you can do, especially if you're first time or you know, you're not really familiar with the terms and, and structuring side, is to go ask other entrepreneurs that you think highly of, who did they get money from? And how have they been to work with? And what did their deal structures look like? And it's pretty easy to tell. It's a small industry in cannabis and in tech and in everywhere else. It's very easy to tell who are the good people to work with, who are not, who actually help when things go sideways, you know, who don't. And then it just is all a, a de- dependent on how much you need the capital with then who you choose to go with. I hear you on that. And, you know, I, I recently had a, another interview with Kevin Vela, Vela wood which is a law firm and you know something that interesting that he said was that very often when you take that first angel or or uh, seed round from more you know an institutional vc not friends and family but that institutional vc they're going to set the terms that will carry with you through every deal you do after that or every financing you do after that so it's so important to make sure you're you're setting an appropriate foundation I think that's very true. It's absolutely true. And, and you know, there are some predatory VCs or investors, but by and large, like remember, even on our side, I think those, those sayings are exacerbated because if we are too predatory or if any venture capital firm is, then other investors are not going to come in because the deal terms would be biased towards the original investors. And the entrepreneur might lose sort of interest because his equity stake isn't big enough or their employee option pool isn't big enough. So I think for the most part, that doesn't happen so often. The biggest disconnect with us and entrepreneurs or any investor and entrepreneur is going to be on valuation. And especially in the cannabis space, what I've found is valuations largely are ludicrous. 
Mm. and not at all based on actual sales or real revenue targets, but, but, you know, very optimistic, I guess I would say, future revenue targets. And so, and that, what, what entrepreneurs don't realize is that's going to kill you when you go to raise the next round that you're going to have to raise because you raise too high. And so you're going to have a down round. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a balance there between making sure that you don't give away your entire company by having too small of a valuation and simultaneously making sure you don't ask for too much from investors who perhaps aren't that savvy and might give it to you. Because then when you need the big checks, the big investors all know what a company is actually worth. And mm. so no doubt it's a balance. I think the best thing that you can do is get guidance from those who have done it before. None of this is recreating the wheel. Mm, great point. You know, I, I know I'm a bit of a finance nerd as my mind is just spinning with different questions I can can pull from the, the recent discussion we've had here. One thing that I think would be valuable is, can you give a few examples of predatory terms? Like what's just the, the go-to you, you perhaps see often that entrepreneurs should just shy away from right away? Well, I think I would be really careful on loans in particular. You know, especially in the cannabis space, you see a lot of people are willing to give you you know, asset-backed loans. You can see a lot of people are willing to give you, you know, perhaps not straight equity, but some sort of payout at a future date that looks like an equity instrument, but really it is a loan because you have to pay back by a certain date. There might be terms in there that require you to go public before you really should. So that's unique to the cannabis space. I would be careful of that. And I do not advise companies to go public before they really should. Mm. So there shouldn't be, you know, any sort of aspect like that. And the terms, you know, the other thing that I can think of is sometimes people don't carve out employee option pools. And so you end up having a cap table that might look pretty good until you realize that you don't have enough money to pay your employees equity in order to keep them there, even when times get tough or they're not being paid exactly what you want them to, or what they want to get paid. So some of those are, are perhaps the more standard ones. Excellent. Thanks for that. When looking at uh, at Entourage and or coming back to it, you've got your your typical bite size between one to you know ten million plus. What's the process for you for one when the entrepreneur comes to you, and then when you start going into the analysis process, what what does that look like? Well, I could certainly bore you with all, you know, 50 pages of our diligence doc. But oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Very of that. There's two sort of processes there. So there's the deal intake process, which is when a, a, an entrepreneur comes to us. And this is how this would go in short order. So somebody introduces me to an entrepreneur. I connect with them. Take a look at their pitch deck. I can tell pretty quickly if it's something we'd be interested in or not. If we're not interested, they get a quick email within the week basically saying, thank you, but we're a pass. You know, hope you prove us wrong. Then that goes into our deal pipeline where we track all of the companies that we've ever been pitched and their sector and industry and what valuation and who referred them to us, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be where we're done with that company. If we move forward with the company and we want to look at it further, we first would do that quick you know, analysis of their pitch deck. Then we would jump on the phone with the entrepreneur typically and have them give us a pitch of the company overall. 
if we like what we hear on that company pitch, then we might ask them for additional information or resources. And that's a little bit like an RFP for them. Then they would pitch to our entire group on our Wednesday meeting, which is our investment committee and uh, company portfolio presentation. So that's every Wednesday. So they would come in and pitch to the group overall. And this is sort of the traditional thing that you see in Silicon Valley that everybody talks about. It's pretty arduous. So, you know, we're super nice, but we're going to really dive into the business and try to understand all the underlying components of it. After that, say that we're interested in a company, then we would as ask for access to their data room. And the data room is usually pretty filled out. We're talking about, you know, financials, projections, any material contracts, any sort of manufacturers or service providers that they utilize, any lawsuits they have outstanding, you know, we go into sort of that entire data room. Then we would assign, you know, an analyst and a a partner to work on the deal. And, And those two, if they like what they see in the data room, would write up a brief and we would explain out to the company, you know, to the group again, you listen to this individual. Now we're going to have a brief going over, you know, this company and where it's at, why we think it's interesting. And and from there, we get a lot more granular. Say if that goes well, then we start an investment memo process. And that means we go and visit the company and we talk to the senior uh, members of their staff and, and we begin a pretty in-depth diligence process. And the beautiful thing is, is that for a company, all of this teaches them what a third-party investor who's more institutional is going to ask for of them. It teaches them what's important. Once you've gone through one of these, you're usually pretty prepped for any other investors that want to come in and and really, you know, play doctor on your insides. (laughs) And then from there, we all speak out on this investment memo. And every Tuesday is when we have our readouts decide if we're going to move forward with a deal with even more due diligence. So if we move forward with more due diligence on, on that Tuesday, then the company and, and us would go through background checks and, and all of that, and then we could fund. So it's it's certainly not short, but we can write quick, uh, checks quicker if we have you know know the entrepreneur, know the business, have time ahead of it. But that's what you should really expect for some of the top investment managers out there. What I was thinking as you're walking through that list is, under that, I can I can sense that there's a, a high degree of sophistication. It's process driven, and even when you mention that when you pass on a deal, you still keep an eye on it to see into the future. You know how they did, if I, if I'm not mistaken there. And I I imagine that's to to keep an eye on on learning perhaps from from mistakes. Absolutely, and you know, and and it also might be that maybe we kind of liked this deal, but it wasn't the right time, or or sometimes we just have too many deals going on. Or, you know, a company might be too early and maybe we want them to stay in touch with us, but, you know, they don't. And so we try to be pretty diligent about that process. And then, you know, there's a lot of value in a database that lists all of the cannabis deals that have been raising capital since 2014. So that's another part of it. We can kind of see where the industry is growing and take some of these insights and apply them to our portfolio companies. We can see some of the holes and we can see some of the opportunities and we can tell our companies at what valuation they could think about raising because we see what everybody else is. So there's a lot of value to being thoughtful with data. Mm -hmm. And in general, when it, when you're looking at the funding process, how long, how long does it usually take for you for a deal? You know, it's totally arbitrary. It's not going to be less than a couple of weeks. And it could be sizably more if we're looking at doing a really big deal. Now, we are 
we're a, a firm that uh, takes in capital. So we don't, you know, go out and do special perfect purpose vehicles for all of them. So we don't have to worry about bringing in the capital to do the deals. It's mostly just, you know, it's like Warren Buffett said, you, you the, the most important thing are the deals that you didn't do. And so we try really hard to not get into deals that are going to then cause us a headache and we're going to have to divorce from eventually. Cody, if you don't mind, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Through your your experience and, and in your career, what's been the biggest mistake perhaps you've made, whether it be financing a deal or with the capital relationship? You know, what, what's something that was really pivotal in your career that would be helpful? Sure. I mean, I think the, the biggest mistake I ever made was waiting until, you know, 2018 to make the jump into this business. Mm. Most of the mistakes I make, I think, stem from fear and in action as opposed to, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have taken action on this. And so, you know, if, if I could do it again, I would have gone into cannabis earlier and I would have raised this fund earlier. And, you know, then we could be sitting on on my yacht while we were talking about this. And <laughs> could be, you know, we could be doing some really things in an industry where, you know, you don't have a lot of females or Latinas at the top. And and where, you know, maybe you have some players that, that were early that aren't going to do some interesting things with the money that they made. So I think that would be the, the lesson I would take away. And for entrepreneurs too, I'm always a fan of, you know, rip off the bandaid, go and take action. And usually what's going to kill you is, is sitting around and worrying as opposed to moving forward thoughtfully. Hmm. That lends to what I often remind myself is progress over perfection. It is so true. It's absolutely true. I mean, the only times where I don't agree with that are anything related to compliance and legal and safety and regulatory issues. But but when it comes to moving forward on your business, I completely, completely agree. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for that. Just as we're starting to lean on time here, would you mind sharing predictions for 2020? Any predictions you have for the year to come? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, my prediction is that as we come into 2020, that the cannabis industry starts really outperforming. In some vein, I, I hope it takes a little bit because I think we're going to be able to really do some interesting things in this distressed environment. But I imagine that the cannabis industry in 2020 looks a lot different than it does today. And that is positive on the upside. I think in 2020, we are going to legalize in more capacities than we thought. I don't think we'll have generalized legalization or the States Act passed, but I think we'll have more states legalized. I think we'll have a banking segment legalized, which will help with a lot of the companies. And, and I actually think that we're going to work through some of the taxation issues like 280E. So I am really optimistic overall. I also think that we are going to see in the next, let's call it six months, more distressed opportunities. So before we see the light, we're going to have a little bit more darkness. And so if you're an entrepreneur out there, you know, now is the time to be shoring up your balance sheet and to be focusing on profitability as opposed to complete market share grabbing and to make sure that you're well positioned to take advantage of other companies suffering at this stage. And so those are the two things that I think. I think we're going to see a little bit more difficulty in the short term, a little bit more pain. And then I think, you know, towards the middle of the end of 2020, we're going to start seeing the cannabis market really turn. It's definitely going to be a great and interesting year for the industry. So I appreciate that. And as a final question, how can the listeners follow your work and get in touch or be in touch if they need to? 
Sure. Well, EntourageEffectCapital.com is our website. If you want to see our portfolio companies or what we're doing there, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn and Instagram. So that's just my name, C-O-D-I-E, last name Sanchez, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z on both of those. I write quite a bit about what's happening in cannabis investing on LinkedIn. And then on social media, it's just whatever, you know, little squirrel catches my attention as I'm running around the country. And besides that, yeah, if you have interesting companies in the space, I want to talk to you. If you're interested in investing in the space, I want to talk to you. We need more intelligent, thoughtful, strategic humans in this really nascent cowboy industry. And so we're always looking for both of those. No, that's awesome. Well, uh, let's wrap it up with that. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for me. I appreciate it, Corey. Great questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.